This is AFF On Air, the Australian Frequent Flyer podcast, bringing you the latest news, tips and tricks for Australian travellers. G'day and welcome to episode 49 of AFF On Air. It's Saturday the 14th of November 2020 and I'm your host Matt Graham. In just two days from now, Qantas will celebrate a very significant milestone. In fact, next Monday marks Qantas's 100th birthday. So what exactly happened on the 16th of November 1920 and how did Qantas grow from a little airline in the outback to a successful and iconic international airline? Later in the episode, the curator of the Qantas Founders Museum in Longreach and an all-round Qantas history buff, Tom Harwood, joins me on the podcast to share the story of the birth of Qantas. But first, here's what else is making news in the world of airlines and frequent flyer points this fortnight. And we had some great news at the beginning of this week on the vaccine front, with drug company Pfizer announcing that preliminary results of its COVID-19 vaccine trial showed it to be 90% effective. The trial is still ongoing, and even if it does prove to be safe and effective on a large scale conclusively, it will still take a bit of time for the vaccine to be rolled out. So this doesn't mean the pandemic is over and international borders will reopen just yet, but it does give us a lot of hope that things could be back to normal pretty soon. Qantas CEO Alan Joyce described this as the best news the travel industry has had all year. There's also been plenty of good news on the reopening of Australia's internal state borders this week. Tasmania reopened to New South Wales last week, and Western Australia has now reopened to all states and territories except for New South Wales and Victoria from this morning. New South Wales and the ACT are preparing to open back up to Victoria from the 23rd of November. Tasmania will reopen to Victoria on the 27th of November, and South Australia will open up to Victoria again from the 1st of December. It comes as Victoria has recorded no new COVID-19 cases or deaths for 14 days in a row as of yesterday. And what a remarkable turnaround that is. Finally, at yesterday's National Cabinet meeting, all states and territories except for Western Australia committed in principle to reopening all state borders by Christmas. This would theoretically mean that we could expect Queensland also to open back up to people from Sydney or from Victoria by then. No date has been announced yet by Queensland, but my money would be probably on the first week of December. Most Australian states are also committed to implementing health measures that would enable internal borders to remain open next year. And after the year from hell, I have to say that it's so nice to be able to talk about some good news for a change. Unfortunately, the outlook still isn't that great, though, for the more than 30,000 Australians that still remain stranded overseas. A few weeks ago, Prime Minister Scott Morrison said that he hoped all of these Australians would be able to return home by Christmas, but it seems to have been more of an aspiration than something they were actually um, practically doing. The number of people allowed to arrive into Australia each week is still far too low for this goal to be mathematically possible at this point. Christmas is now only six weeks away, believe it or not, and in recent weeks the number of Australians trying to get home from overseas has actually increased rather than decreasing as the backlog was started to clear. And that's despite limited number of Qantas repatriation flights arriving in Darwin over these past few weeks. Tasmania has also committed to taking in a small number of quarantining returning travellers, but this is also not going to be enough, sadly, to clear the backlog. Victoria is still not accepting international travellers just yet that need to go into quarantine on arrival, but it is now allowing quarantine-free flights from New Zealand. As a result, Air New Zealand has resumed accepting passengers on its daily flights from Auckland to Melbourne. 
Qantas will close its airport service desks and sail counters and reduce staffing at baggage services desks from early next year, resulting in the loss of around 100 jobs. The move will help Qantas to further cut costs, but frequent flyers are concerned that this will lead to service reductions and chaos when there are significant flight disruptions. As part of the changes, Qantas will remove dedicated airport service desks, including those in the Qantas Club lounges. Customers will instead be encouraged to self-service their bookings using kiosks, the Qantas website, or the Qantas app. But Qantas has said that it will have a team available at the airport to support time-sensitive flight management and exceptions. Qantas says that sales desks are no longer required at airports because cash payments are no longer accepted, and in future customers will be instructed to purchase tickets on the Qantas website or to contact the call centre for urgent queries. But as any anyone who's ever had to deal with the Qantas call centre will know, that's a terrible idea for dealing with people that have urgent inquiries. Now, and the airline also plans to, quote, adjust the coverage times, unquote, of its baggage services counters at Australian airports. That means that if you're flying in an off-peak period, like a Saturday afternoon, and Qantas loses your bag, there'll no longer be anybody at the airport to help you. Qantas says it's investing in technology to assist in self-service recovery options for customers. Airport check-in counters will continue to be staffed. When the New South Wales border reopens shortly to Victoria, Qantas, Jetstar and Virgin will all significantly increase flights between Sydney and Melbourne, which had been down to a bare-bones limited schedule the last few months. Qantas is also shortly resuming flights from Sydney to Bendigo and Mildura, and it's announced plans to launch a new route from Adelaide to Mildura. Qantas has also announced it will launch three new domestic routes from Canberra with Boeing 717 flights to Hobart, Cairns and the Sunshine Coasts from the nation's capital beginning from next month. It comes barely a month after smaller regional airlines started flying on all three of those routes out of Canberra, raising some questions about whether this move from Qantas could be seen as anti-competitive. Before COVID-19, none of these routes were served at all from Canberra. Hobart, meanwhile, is set to get direct flights to New Zealand from early next year, with flights to be subsidised by the government. With Lord Howe Island now open to tourists again and Qantas Link flying at least daily, Qantas has just released a whole bunch of award availability to this stunning holiday destination. Flights to Lord Howe Island are typically very expensive, with one-way flights ranging from at the very cheapest $480 right through to $900 or even higher per person for a one-way ticket. But if you have Qantas points, you can fly there for just 8,000 points and around $89 in taxes one way. Many flights from Sydney to Lord Howe Island now have up to four classic flight reward seats available in July and August next year, and many other dates across the next uh, 12 months have two seats available, including travel dates in the next month and during the autumn and spring shoulder seasons next year, but there's very few available during the summer, which is the most popular time to visit. Shares in Virgin Australia are due to be transferred to Bain Capital next Tuesday, paving the way for Virgin Australia to finally come out of voluntary administration. And once this happens, we should very soon have some more certainty as well around the future of Virgin Australia and what the airline's business model and product offering is going to look like going forward. This month, Virgin's Velocity program is offering up to 40% bonus points if you transfer your credit card or hotel points to Velocity Frequent Flyer. You can also earn 15% bonus Velocity points by transferring from flybys this month. 
And from the 1st of November, Flybys has removed the annual velocity points transfer limit, which was previously 138,000 Flybys points per calendar year. Flybys has confirmed that this is a permanent change. Now that said, if I were you, I would hold off just now from transferring new points to Velocity. At the moment, international reward bookings are still unavailable, and we're still yet to see what's going to happen with Virgin in the long term. So since Velocity normally offers similar bonus points every May and November, uh, I would wait probably until May next year. The new Berlin-Brandenburg Airport, or BER, finally opened at the start of this month. After years and years and years of embarrassing delays and scandals, which caused the cost to blow out by more than 10 times. But the German airport's many construction problems are now fixed, and the airport has been deemed safe. The first flight, which was an EasyJet A320, landed at the new airport on the 31st of October. Tegel Airport, which was until now Berlin's main airport, is now closed. And the old Schönefeld Airport building, which is located just across the runway from the new airport, is still in use, but it's been rebranded as BER Terminal 5. There are currently four main airport lounges open in the new BER Terminal 1, Lounge Tegel and the larger Lounge Tempelhof, which are both named after Berlin's former airports, are located on the first floor in the Schengen Departures area. Priority Pass members can access both of those lounges, and Lufthansa is also operating two lounges at BER, the Lufthansa Business Lounge and the Senator Lounge, which are available to Star Alliance Business Class and Star Alliance Gold passengers. And new data from the Australian Frequent Flyer reveals that Norway is the the country with the world's cheapest domestic flights. Romania is the second cheapest for domestic flights, followed by Turkey, Iran, Chile, Colombia, the Philippines, Kazakhstan, Malaysia, and Ukraine. Australia ranked 54th out of the 94 countries that are large enough to have regular domestic flights. But Australia ranked 14th when considering the cost of a typical domestic flight as a percentage of the average annual household income for the country. This means that Australians can generally afford to buy domestic flights, much more than people living in, say, Thailand or Kenya, where the nominal cost of the flights is lower, but the average person has far less money to spend. According to this data, Greenland and the Democratic Republic of Congo tied as the two countries with the most expensive domestic flights. If you want to have a look at the full results, you can check out my article called The Cheapest and Most Expensive Countries for Domestic Flights, which you'll find on australianfrequentflyer.com.au. And that's what's making news this fortnight. For more regular news updates and deals, subscribe to the Australian Frequent Flyer Gazette or follow us on Facebook. Did you know that you can get more from your Australian Frequent Flyer membership by upgrading to Silver or Gold membership? For just $50 a year, Silver members see no advertisements on the vast majority of community forum pages. And for only $75 a year, in addition, Gold members can receive discounted travel goods and services valued at over $400 a year, including discounts on Qantas Club, NordVPN, Expert Flyer, and more. Most importantly, by upgrading your Australian Frequent Flyer membership, though, you'll be supporting the website and this podcast. For more information, visit australianfrequentflyer.com.au forward slash upgrade. Next Monday, the 16th of November 2020, marks a very important milestone for Qantas. The little airline that began in the Australian outback and went on to become Australia's national carrier 
is turning 100 years old. The Qantas centenary will be celebrated under rather unfortunate circumstances given the airline that was once Australia's international airline is currently operating almost no international flights due to the pandemic. But this is just a temporary lull for the flying kangaroo and I have no doubt it will be back stronger than ever to fly Australians all over the world again for the next 100 years once the pandemic's under control. To mark the occasion on Monday, Qantas will operate a special centenary sightseeing flight and there's also little uh, celebrations going on around the country including at the Qantas Founders Museum in Longreach. But what exactly happened 100 years ago? What's the full story behind Qantas's humble beginnings? Tom Harwood is the curator of the Qantas Founders Outback Museum in Longreach, and he joins me now on the AFF On Air podcast. Welcome, Tom. Good morning. How are you? I'm very well. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Um, So you're the curator at the Qantas Founders Museum. What does that involve, Tom? To a large extent, it involves trying to look after stuff. Uh, (laughs) In a broader sense, I guess I I do research, I write articles for the about historical aspects of the, of the story of Qantas. But I guess more importantly than that, I also have a, play a large part in deciding what sort of items become part of the collection of the museum, mm. how they're displayed, what sort of story we tell with those things. Uh, unfortunately, the reality for most museums is, is that not everything can be put on display at any one time because there's too much. And so quite often you're putting stuff in storage and then building a display around a variety of items. So when people give us things, I always ask them, if you can, write me a few words about how you came to have this thing. What's your story? What flight were you on? What did you do? What are your memories of that sort of thing? So it's not just an item we're being given. It's the story behind the people. Because as far as we're concerned, the museum is telling a people's story. We have aeroplanes. We've got, aer- we've got real aeroplanes. We've got some replica aeroplanes. Full-size things. But that's not what the story is about. The story is about the people who created a national icon out of nothing. It's 100 years, it's an amazing story. Mm. And that's what the museum's about. My my role is to look after things, to decide what goes in the museum, to develop displays, and then to also maintain things. So, yeah, I might be, might be a simple case of putting a piece of paper in, an em, in a plastic sleeve to preserve it for the future. It might be out there with a gurney cleaning a 747. That's the range of activities I get involved in. So there's no simple answer to what the, what does the curator do? Oh, all sorts of things. <laughs> yes, yes. And do you, do you have many items uh, sort of in storage that you're not able to display at any given time? Because I guess the museum's only a certain size, right? Generally, the, the, the figure that most museums work to is, is probably 80% of what we, what we have in our collection is not on display because you also have to turn things over. You can't leave things out on permanent display as a rule because... Even artificial light will damage things. There's dust in the air. You have to... Documents in particular are a real concern for fading because you can display them for, for, say, a month. Then you need to retire them and put them away for three months so they can recover and rest before they come out and are shown again. So it's it's one of those rotating sort of things. And that's why I say most things are put away safely. What we can, we put on display. And quite often, we will build a themed display around a number of items... Mm that actually tell a story rather than just say, this is a thing. You know, I've got a, I have a cabinet there that's labelled what's new at the museum. And the newest thing in that is a portable typewriter. Uh-uh. Back in 1971, a chap who called himself Mr. Brown 
told Qantas he put a bomb on board a 707 and wanted $500,000 to tell them where the bomb was. Well, the typewriter in which he typed the note to Qantas in the first place was bought from a Sydney stationery store, but he used a dud check to pay for it. So when they caught the fellow, whose name was Peter McCarry, they actually, the police found the typewriter still there, and because he, it was effectively stolen goods because he hadn't paid for it properly, the people who'd sold it to him got it back. Huh. Their son gave it to me last month. That's amazing. They kept it all this time. <laughs> <laughs> the typewriter is now is currently on display in the What's New at the Museum cabinet because that's the newest thing that's coming to the place. Wow. And and so I guess also that means that if, if um, you're visiting the museum regularly, then each time you go, there's going to be different things to see. There are. It's good for repeat visitation, as they call it. <laughs> yes. Now, obviously, with your role, and, and um, I know that you're, you're quite familiar with the Qantas history, so I thought you'd be a really good person to talk to about the birthday, the 100th birthday of Qantas, which is coming up in just two days on the 16th of November this year. So, you know, according to Qantas, anyway, the uh, airline was founded on the tw- uh, 16th of November, 1920. Now, can you tell me, Tom, what actually happened on the 16th of November, 1920 that's so significant? I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a radical rabble-rouser. I decree 16th of November is their christening day. Their birthday was back in July. Because uh-huh. on the 16th, the 16th of November, somebody, and probably a clerk, from the Cannon and Peterson Law Office in Edward Street, Brisbane, walked out of the office, up Adelaide Street to George Street to the Supreme Court building, walked into the office of the joint re- or the, sorry, the Registrar of Joint Stock Companies, handed over some money and some paperwork, said, I want to register a company name, please. And a few minutes later, he walked out with the 146th Certificate of Incorporation issued in Queensland that year for a company that was called the Queensland and Northern Territory Aerial Services Limited. And that was it. That was the 16th of November, 1920. The real story goes back beyond that, a couple, even a couple of years, really. Uh-huh. A fellow called Hudson Fish, who came from Tasmania, was in the Australian Light Horse, joined number one squadron of the Australian Flying Corps as an observer in Palestine in August 1917. In March 1918, a bloke called Paul McGuinness, who was born in Victoria and also joined the Light Horse for a different part of it, also joined the squadron as a pilot. And in June, they flew together once. And then from about August to the end of the war, on the 31st of October, those two fellows flew together on a regular basis in combat. Both received the award of the Distinguished Flying Cross for their activities in the war. And a week before the war finished, Fish was sent off to flying school to learn to be a pilot as well. So he never actually flew as a pilot during the war because the war was over a week after he started his training. <laughs> they then came back to Australia and the federal government decided to have an air race from England to Australia in 1919. McGuinness and Fish were commissioned to develop the landing grounds between Longreach and Darwin. And so the Defence Department hired a Model T Ford from Longreach Motors and a driver named George Gorham, who's also an ex-serviceman. And the three of them drove from Longreach to Burgtown and across to, to Catherine and caught the train to Darwin. And along the way, because it was such rough territory, Paul McGuinness said one night around the campfire something on the lines of, you know what, this place could use an air service. And by the time they got to Darwin, he and Fish had plotted out in their minds pretty much what they thought they could get, get going out here which was going to be a joyride in their taxi service. Paul McGuinness wound up in, in Cloncurry in December 1919 in charge of the fuel depot there. And while he was there, 
he met a grazier named Fergus McMaster. Fergus McMaster had been driving across the bed of the Cloncurry River in his car, hit a rock, broke an axle on a Sunday afternoon. He couldn't get anybody to repair it for him. But McMaster, McGinnis saw McMaster walking up the street, went and chatted to him, and went out and fixed his car for him. So they established a friendship. We moved to July 1920, and in the last week of July, the Brisbane exhibition was being held, moved forward from August because the Prince of Wales was in town for the official opening. Fergus McMaster, along with many other people from Western Queensland, was in Brisbane for the ECA. Former against the Hudson Fish were travelling by train back from Cloncurry to Melbourne to report to the Defence Department, and in Brisbane had a meeting at the Gresham Hotel with Fergus McMaster to put their idea for an air service in Western Queensland to him. The three of them discussed the idea, and that's where Pontus was actually born because they decided that would be a, a great idea. They could make it happen right after that meeting. Fergus McMaster went off to see colleagues around Brisbane to get seed capital from them to help make the thing happen. McGuinness and Fish continued on towards Melbourne but stopped into Sydney and on the August, 19th of August 1920 ordered the first Qantas aeroplane which was an Avro 504K from um, Australian Aircraft Engineering. They had to build it for them. And then they continued on to Melbourne to report to the Defence Department about the trip they'd done across North Queensland. While they were there... McMaster, who had political contacts with the country party, arranged for McGuinness and Fish to have a meeting with the Prime Minister and the Cabinet to discuss their ideas. And at this stage, there was, of course, there was no company, there was just the idea. And they had a, that discussion. Prime Minister said, thank you very much, basically, and we'll, we'll, we'll let, let, let us know what you're doing and as things develop. Um, and then in January 1920, or so 16th of November 1920, the company name was registered, and then in January 1921, they got the first aeroplane and brought it to Longreach. The first board meeting was held in Winton on the 10th of February 1921. One of the decisions that was made at the board meeting was that they would operate from Longreach because Longreach was the end of the railway line. And if you wanted to get supplies of fuel and oil and parts in, that was the logical place to be. Get things to Winton, you had to use a stagecoach or bullock wagon. If it rained, the ground was so muddy, they weren't going to get there, so they'd be stranded. So Longreach was the logical place for them to, to start operations, so that's where it all happened. Yeah. So flying started in February 1921, and the idea just grew from there. Ah, so I guess in that case, the 16th of November 1920, and thanks for that, that was a really good detailed explanation of how that started. The birthday is really just a ceremonial day. As you say, The I, I mean, Fish and McGuinness met already two years before that, and the idea had already been sort of culminating before the, before then as well. Do, do you know when the name Queensland and Northern Territory Aerial Service, which I guess is now the acronym Qantas, um, was was decided on? Was that on 16th of November, or was that before then? It was before then. It was, it was, there were three or four different names they, they thought about. When McGuinness and Fish ordered the aircraft in, in August, the name they were using was Western Queensland Auto Aero Service. Oh. Then it went to Australian Transcontinental Aerial Services Company Limited. Uh, that didn't last very long. The first advertising leaflet, the first advertising for the, for the company, called it Northern Territory and Queensland Aerial Services Limited. But the first prospectus had Queensland and Northern Territory Aerial Services Limited. Now, the first time we saw the advertising was on the 27th of November 1920, in the program for the Australian Aerial Derby in Sydney that year. And there's a, a chap I know who's a very avid aviation collector has managed to get a copy of that program and it's actually got notes 
but it was Hudson Fisher's program. We, we suspect it might have been because at the bottom of the page, he's written a little note saying, probably the very first Qantas advertisement. Huh. And it would have been. But at that stage, in that advertisement, the name was Northern Territory and Queensland Aerial Services. But when it was registered on the 16th of November, 11 days earlier, it was actually Queen's House and Northern Territory. So from the time, the, at the time the ad was lodged, Northern Territory and Queensland, but by the time the ad appeared, they turned it around and made it Queen's House and Northern Territory. The reason for that being that ANZAC was becoming a very popular term at the time, just after World War One, and that was Australian and New Zealand Army Corps, and they thought, wouldn't it be great if we had a name that could be shortened into a word like that. And, of course, you couldn't shorten N-T-A-Q-A-S into a recognisable word of any no, kind. No, you can't. But Q-A-N-T-A-S, you could say as Qantas. And that was the inspiration for making it to that. And I guess the other thing was this. Queensland and Northern Territory was where they expected to be operating initially. Yes. Of course, for quite a few years, it was all Queensland, but then they moved to the Territory in the 1930s. That, that's a really interesting. I, um, and obviously, Qantas is a lot more marketable than Nitaakis or, or Wilkas or <laughs> some of these other acronyms that were thrown around at the start there. So really good marketing decision they made 100 years ago, I have to say. Um, now, so you said that the first flight was in February 1921 and the first, the first plane they ordered in 1920 before they'd registered the name. But um, I believe also Qantas um, at the start there also built some of their own planes uh, right where you are in Longreach. Yeah, that was from 1926 to 1928. Okay. They built uh, seven, seven de Havilland DH-50s and one DH-9 as well from parts. Um, de Havilland developed the DH-50 as an airliner. So it was actually the first Qantas airliner. Before that, they were using converted military airplanes. DH-50 had a cabin for four passengers and the pilots sitting at the back in the openers, of course, pilots did in those days. <laughs> and it was a very popular airliner and... Qantas was one of several companies which actually built their own. De Havilland was very open to licence-built aircraft, and so Geoffrey de Havilland came to Longreach and inspected the facilities that Qantas was going to use in, the, in our, what is now the heritage-listed hangar and approved for Qantas to, to make the aircraft. Because Hudson Fisher worked out it would save £50 an aircraft if they built them here rather than buying them from England. Oh, right. Do you know how much that is in today's money, roughly? No, I don't. Okay. I don't. I assume quite no. a lot. Quite a bit. I, look, I, I, I do know when they started joy flights in 1921, they were charging three guineas for 10 minutes. Oh, three okay. guineas is three pounds, three shillings. And according to the Reserve Bank's calculator, in 2018 money, that is $252.10. Oh, okay. That is a lot of money for a 10-minute joy flight. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yes, definitely. But the DH-50s, um, yep. The other advantage of building it locally, of course, was it kept your team of people together because Qantas had built a, developed a team of, of people who were very, very good at working on aircraft. If the aircraft weren't getting broken, they weren't needed. And it was hard to justify employing those people. <laughs> but if you were building your own aeroplanes, you had work for the mechanics, for the woodworkers, for the fabric workers, all there going on all the time. So, so for those three years, 26 through 28, they were building aeroplanes. Hudson Bush actually made the comment, he thought Qantas was the only airline ever to build its own aircraft. But he was mistaken in that regard. There are other airlines doing the same thing. Uh, but because he was in Longreach in the middle of Queensland, which is, you know, even today, that visitors often think we're fairly isolated. I, and, but back then it was even more isolated from what was happening in the rest of the world. 
It's not surprising he didn't know what was happening in Czechoslovakia or even Western Australia, where there was some being built over there. Um, uh, okay. Yeah, genuinely held belief, but but a mistaken one. Mm. And and of course the the, the hangar where Qantas built its own planes is still open to the public right at, at your museum, which is excellent. Um, definitely well worth a visit. So, what sort of happened between? So at the start, it was just sort of flying around Queensland. Um, how did? Qantas evolve from just a little idea in the outback to becoming, you know, the national airline and, you know, a major international player just 50 years later? To be honest with you, I sometimes wonder that myself. Um, and I think anybody looks at the through would say, how the heck did that happen? Because they started off, as I say, a joyride and air taxi service. That was it for 1921 through 1922. November 1922... They started the first scheduled airline service, which was from Charleville through to Cloncurry. That was a two-day flight, because they did Charleville, Longridge, the first day, Longridge, Cloncurry, the second day. Wow. But at the start of that first flight on the 2nd of November, 1922, in Charleville, at 5 o'clock in the morning, Paul McGuinness made a speech to the dozen people who turned up to see the aeroplane off, that this service was one day destined to connect Australia to Asia, to Africa, to Europe, and to America. And he was going to fly from Charleville to Longridge, which is next to nothing in terms of what he was talking about. But the vision was there then. When the aircraft arrived in Longridge, they had a, what they call a smoke concert that night to celebrate the occasion. Fergus McMaster, who was then the chairman of the company, also made a speech in which he said, this company is destined to one day be one of the great airlines in the world. We will be failing in our duty if we let it stop here. McMaster hadn't heard McGuinness's speech in, in Charlotte in the morning. He wasn't there. But two fellows directing the airline, guiding the airline, and having this vision for where it's going to go. And that vision was the guiding light for Qantas from then on. No doubt about it. And so 1931, they were involved in the first experimental overseas airmail service. Only did the Brisbane to Darwin section of it, but they were, they were part of that. 1934 saw... The original Queensland Northern Territory Aerial Services link up with the Imperial Airways in England to form Qantas Empire Airways, which was a new company to operate the overseas airmail service. And Qantas did Brisbane to Singapore, and then British Airways, uh, Imperial Airways rather, did the rest of it. Imperial Airways is now called British Airways, by the way. Mm. Um, and then with World War II, uh, with the, the Japanese invasion of Southeast Asia, things had to change. But Qantas then started operating through as far as Karachi. Oh. And after World War II, when Qantas got the constellations, they operated all the way from Sydney to London as Qantas. That's the first time that had happened. Federal government bought Qantas out in 1947, bought all the shares in the company, and it became the national airline. 1949, Trans-Australia Airlines became the domestic airline in Australia. They'd been established in 46. It took them three years to get fully operational. And Qantas then became Australia's overseas airline. And that was really when it became seen as a national icon, I think, because anybody travelling overseas, any Australians travelling overseas, saw the kangaroo on the tail of the aeroplane. And I keep hearing it over and over again from our visitors. I cried when I saw the kangaroo on the tail of the aeroplane. I felt like I was going home. Even the Prime Minister, Bob Menzies, once made the comment, when he stepped on a Qantas aircraft and heard the Australian accents of the flight attendants, he felt like he was home. And Qantas was the connecting force for Australians around the world. Whether they were tourists travelling overseas, people working overseas, going to and from, and especially coming back to Australia, Qantas was 
their connection with home. And I think that's really what's made the difference because everybody thinks they own a part of Qantas or maybe Qantas owns a part of them. It's one of the, the amazing things of working at this museum that the people who come to visit us don't own shares in Qantas and probably never will, but they all feel it's part of them and they're part of it. And, and so sometimes I wonder, how the heck did that happen? <laughs> when you look at the history of it and then and that development, you start to see Australians, we are incredibly sentimental about our own country. And Qantas is, gave us that connection. No matter where we were in most of the world, Qantas was connected in some way. And I think that's really what, what's made it. What we, what we see today, why we feel celebrating 100 years is so important because it's part of us. I can totally relate to that. I, I, I will admit I shed a tear or two um, coming back from... I'd been overseas for a long time. I got on a Qantas plane in Santiago, heard the Australian accents. That was back when also they had that safety video to, um, uh, showing all the great places around Australia. Um, you really yeah. do feel like you're, you're, you, you know, you're already halfway home just when you get on one of those uh, planes with a kangaroo on the tail. And ab- absolutely, I completely agree with what you've said. And I, I must admit, I never knew Qantas flew to Karachi. <laughs> that's that was uh, that's uh, interesting as well for me. So for the for the 100th anniversary of Qantas, the Qantas Founders Outback Museum had been planning to put on a bunch of events this year. Um, unfortunately, some of those were cancelled because of the pandemic. But um, you will be um, ha- marking the occasion on Monday for the 16th of November. What are you guys planning to do? Well, we'll have a birthday cake because we always do. And that's the first thing. And this year we've got a special person going to cut the cake for us. The first mechanic employed with Qantas was a fellow called Frank McNally. And Frank was with the company for quite a few years. Uh, and then went out working for, with de Havilland, uh, de Havilland Australia, till his retirement. But Frank's family has been in touch with us. We've got some of, we've got some of Frank's letters. He wrote to Hudson Fish in the 1960s. And we've got, got Frank McNally's dog tag when he was in the Army in World War I um, as part of our collection. And Frank's daughter, our daughter-in-law, is going to be coming this year to cut the cake for us. So we're looking forward to that one. I am doing a talk at 11 o'clock about the history of Qantas. We're doing tours of our, our nationalist heritage and hangar at um, 11 o'clock and 1 o'clock. We're also, I'm doing a talk for the Kennedy family. Alexander Kennedy was one of the first investors in Qantas. He was also a guarantor for the first bank loan and the first airline passenger from Longreach, John Curry on the 3rd of November 1922, but his family is having a reunion here this year. And as part of that, they're having an afternoon tea at the museum, and I'm going to be talking to them about Alexander Kennedy and his life and the things he did, because Alexander was a, a pioneer in grazier in Western Queensland. Migrated from Scotland in 1861, worked in Rock, around Rockhampton area for a while, but then came west and opened up a lot of the ground in northwest Queensland, around Cloncurry and Mount Isa. So even explored on foot, the 200-kilometre route from Cloncurry through to Mount Isa that was used for many, many years. So Kennedy had a, a vital part to play in, in, in the development of Queensland and also the development of Qantas. So the family's coming coming here, and I'm going to be the star turn at the party, apparently. Then that evening, we're having a, there's a members' dinner on as well, so museum members are, will be having a, a, a birthday party that night. Now, some of those things, are my talk and the... Uh, I think the birthday cake cutting as well and the um, the dinner are booked out at the moment. It says that people who are interested can certainly go on the website and 
or call the museum and we can put them on a wait list and see if, if a vacancy turns up, there might be a chance to get in there. But the museum itself is open all day. And I believe you're also offering, uh, offering free entry to the museum for the birthday. That's correct. So for that day, yes, free entry all around. Um, the, the tours we do, the air park tours, and that's a, we'll, still be, we'll still be charging for those. But uh, in terms of the museum itself, which is the main area, main gallery, and the heritage at Hangar, which is the oldest civil aviation structure in Australia still standing, uh, is free, free entry for sure. And for those events that you had to postpone from earlier in the year, are you planning to um, have them at some point as well? We certainly are, because 1921 is the 100th anniversary when Qantas started operating. Remember, 1920 is the date the name is registered, but 1921 is when things started to happen. And so we figure next year is just as good a reason to celebrate as this year would have been. So many of the events which were planned for next year will be happening, which were planned for this year, rather, will be happening next year. Um, don't ask me for the details, because I don't know them all at this stage. I've been so busy, I haven't had time to find out exactly what's going on. And we're, our mate, primary focus, of course, at the moment is the 16th of November, two days away, because that's when that birthday party happens. The other events will be available. All details will be on our website as we go along, so qfom.com.au. If people go to there or follow us on social media, all the information will be made available through those sites. So there's plenty of opportunities to find what's actually going to be happening and when the booking is open and all that sort of thing. So we'll be doing stuff next year as well because the 100th anniversary continues through that year. That's the 100th anniversary of, of Qantas flying. Well, it sounds like a great reason to visit Longreach. Tom Harwood, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been very informative, and I can see why you're the curator of the museum and, and why you're doing these things. You, your, your knowledge of the Qantas history is second to none, so thank you. Thank you, sir. It's been a pleasure. I hope you enjoyed that interview. Tom really does know his stuff, doesn't he? Well, that's all for this episode of AFF On Air. Thanks again to my guest, Tom Harwood, from the Qantas Founders Museum, and thank you so much for listening. For more information about anything in today's episode, have a look at the episode notes. Here you'll also find a link to the AFF On Air discussion thread on the AFF forum. If you enjoyed this podcast, I would really appreciate if you take just a minute to rate and review us on Apple Podcast. That'll help us to reach a wider audience. And if you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe. I'm Matt Graham, and I'll be back next fortnight with more news, tips, and tricks for Australian travellers. Until then, and I'm really pleased to be able to say this, safe travels. Safe travels.